Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new The National Blast podcast with Keenan Skelly. Join Keenan and guests as they blast you to a place that is certainly not boring, yet still giving you highlights from areas in cyber where key policies and legislation are needed, exist, but aren't enforced, or no one is even talking about it. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of The National Blast. As always, I am super excited for my amazing guest today. Uh, Please welcome Corey White from Cyvatar. And uh, Corey, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what we're going to talk about today? Okay. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be on. Um, So a little bit about myself. Um, I've been doing cybersecurity the last 26 years. So yeah, been been around the block a little little bit. So I can give lots of war stories and and just background and perspective on things. And, you know, today we're going to talk about, I think, the ever evolving world of cybersecurity insurance. So it's, I think it's an interesting and pertinent, pertinent topic. I know a lot of companies, as I talk about it, like, hey, they canceled my policy or uh, they increased my cost. Like, so, you know, I'm happy to talk about why that's happening and give some perspective there. All right, great. So um, in terms of the cyber insurance piece of it, you know, what have you kind of experienced in the past as cyber insurance kind of came out of nowhere? I know I myself have also been uh, been in this field for a long time. And I remember when it first started coming out, there was a lot of question about, you know, can companies even make this happen? Can they implement it, you know, effectively? Can they keep up with it? Things of that nature. So maybe if you could give us just a little mini history on kind of how we got to where we're at and how that relates to how everybody's getting canceled right now. <laughs> Yeah, it, um, it it came out, um, I, got, I actually don't know exactly how many years ago, I'd say it really started getting um, popular, I'd say around 10 years ago, um, and there were some some companies that were, you know, ahead of the curve and getting it, but at the end of the day, the idea was, oh, we're going to get cybersecurity insurance, and so if we do have an incident, then, you know, it's covered, we don't have to worry about it, and it was used as a um, <clears throat> way to um, accept some of the risk you know, like, hey, we're not going to do these things because uh, we got insurance and insurance will cover it should that happen, right? And so it was always a risk equation uh, for the companies. Now, on the insurance company side of things, they weren't that mature because they didn't have proper models to model this. It just was not enough data to know, okay, is this a good good company that we should insure? Should we not insure this company? And what the companies were doing, they started getting these really basic questionnaires and they're like, yeah, we're doing this and check all the boxes. And you know, one of the themes that we'll have throughout this talk is that um, compliance does not equal security. And a lot of people think that, oh, we have this one thing that does not actually mean you're going to actually prevent the attack. So, so that's a brief history of where we started. And um, you want me to jump into how where we are now, or are we going to talk about that? Yeah, now? so I, I do have a couple of questions, and you're totally right. You know, when it, it first started, there was no measure or basis of measure to really put it on. And leaning towards the questionnaires is an interesting piece, but typically there's a, a lot of data, a lot of historical data, a lot of person data, a lot of you know company data that can be thrown into traditional types of insurance. Now, since then, a lot of companies, cybersecurity 
security companies have started leaning into that, trying to come up with your cybersecurity score or your risk score and how that kind of translates into cyber insurance. How do you feel or what do you think about um, you know, those kind of companies that are doing that? Do you think that those are valuable metrics or maybe we need to continue working on that? Yeah, I mean, it's different levels to it. Um, I'll go back, uh, I don't know, probably about six, seven years ago, well, it's 2022. So yeah, about six, seven years ago, there's a you know, pretty good size insurance company had had my team, we were going in and evaluating uh, and actually doing the questionnaires and built a website where they fill out the questionnaires. And then we were evaluating and interviewing them, asking, trying to de determine, is this the truth? Are you actually doing these things? Now that was a step in the right direction because it started with just no questionnaires. Then it went to questionnaires. Then it went to questionnaires with a, a brief interview and, and so the problem with all of those things is, and you'll hear this as a theme, is where I said compliance does not equal security. So let's, let's, let's tell you what that actually means in a few um, practical scenarios. So if I check a box and say, yes, I have antivirus, then um, yes, you have checked the box, you meet that requirement. But if you're trying to stop a sophisticated you know, threat actor in brand new malware and ransomware, um, traditional antivirus is not enough. So <clears throat> it's gonna be easily bypassed by, by, by that. So you met the requirement, you checked the box, but you still will probably have an incident. Okay, so gonna, just for my listeners, I'm going to jump in right there. And they already knew that I was going to do this too. Right there, what you said, you're probably going to have an incident. You're definitely going to have an incident. Everybody is going to have an incident. The nature of breaches and attacks today, the, the, the complexity and the sheer number that we're seeing come out just over the past year and, and how much that has escalated is unbelievable. And I always say we have to get to the point where we're normalizing the breach because you're going to get breached. Focus on learning what you have have to do when you get breached it's going to happen okay go ahead <laughs> okay we're going to dive in because i'm going to disagree with you oh yes yeah here's here's why because you know what you just said and um i don't think you'll be offended by this that sounds like marketing propaganda for an incident response company oh and i don't do either of those things <laughs> So I know a lot of people that run incident response companies. I ran uh, an incident response division for, I've done incident response for, I don't know, probably the last 15, you know, 20 years or so. And, and so the whole concept of, yes, you will get breached. You just need to be prepared for that. Well, I, we've overcorrected in that category, right? So I, I, I break down um, the, the breaches into two separate categories. And a little bit about my background, I've done some of the largest breaches in the world over the last 15, 20 years. So some pretty well-known ones. Great. Um, <laughs> I mean, not great, obviously that sucks, but you gained a lot of experience from it, right? Yes, but I think they simply fall into two categories. I'll, I'll call one, the nation state breach, where a nation state of threat, you know, sophisticated threat actor is coming after uh, your company or sometimes the individual at a company. Um, that's gonna happen. I will agree with you there. That breach will absolutely happen. The second one is what I call the drive-by breach, okay? <laughs> drive-by incident, okay? <laughs> so if, if you're sitting on the internet and you have a company, you're on the internet, you're being scanned for vulnerabilities about every two seconds, okay? 
-hmm. Now, if somebody's able to drive by and scan and see, oh, wow, you're not using multi-factor authentication. Oh, wow, you haven't patched the latest you know, security vulnerability that can easily exploit and get a command shell on your system in seconds. You haven't done that. Um, you, are, you aren't using proper antivirus or that next-gen antivirus that can actually stop the execution of malware when I drop my tools on it, on and your system. make you absolutely susceptible to the drive-by. Right, I, I love that analogy. That's actually great. Here's the analogy. Think about it. if I'm driving through your neighborhood, and I look <laughs> at all the houses, and one house, and let's say it's your house, your garage door is open, yeah, it's up, right, and your side gate's cracked. Now every other house is garage doors down, side gates locked. When it gets dark, guess who's gonna get breached? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. I don't disagree with that at all, and oftentimes. When I'm talking about, um, you know, why we have to get used to the breach, why we have to just say you're going to get breached, is almost uh, and, and definitely given my experience from more of a policy perspective. Because when we're talking about how people should be secured and what kind of resources are available to them from the federal government, from the state government, from CISA, from you know the FTC, from whomever. Um, you know, traditionally, we've gone into this place where we're going to fine you, the government is going to fine you, you're going to get this. And that's why companies today, their first response to a breach notification from a security researcher or an incident responder or anyone is call the lawyers, right? Because it's all about protecting, you know, your assets, making sure you don't have to pay a crazy fine, making sure nobody's going to go to jail, dot, dot, dot. So we've kind of instilled this culture of fear into companies today. And they're going to get breached. It just, it's going to happen at some time, whether it's a drive-by or whether it's a nation state actor, we need to change the mindset that you don't automatically have to go into sue and screw mode. You should rather go into how can we help and how can we help mode? And I know I'm a dreamer, I'm a crazy, crazy dreamer, but we have to get past this whole blame and shame thing that we're doing with breaches right now. I know, well, I know you got feelings. I can see, I can see him no, getting ready. Absolutely. Um, so here's a few things. We got to look at ourselves as a cybersecurity industry. If the only thing that we're selling to the uninformed buyer is a detect and respond type of solution, and I've had this conversation many times, oh, you're buying EDR or MDR, EDR, M, uh, endpoint detection and response, uh, managed detection response, MDR, or extended detection and response. My response back to that buyer, just make sure that they're thinking on the right, right mindset. Okay, so you're okay being breached. You just want somebody to detect it for you when it happens, and then you're going to pay for the insight. Yeah, no, I'm not saying that that should be the case. I'm saying 100% that you should totally be ready to not be breached but when you do get breached, you should also be ready to deal with other people and organizations in order in a collective, you know, um, collaborative way so that we don't get into the space that we're in now where everybody just tries to sue each other. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay. The point is, is that we're setting ourselves up for that breach and then we are then we're suing each other. Uh, <laughs> Right. And, and I've done expert witness work as well. So I could talk about the suing side of it. What companies don't realize around this, then we'll circle back to insurance. But I think this is all there really you good. Go. But I totally want to talk to you maybe on this episode, but maybe in another episode about the legal side of it, because that's just a whole other fascinating piece of cybersecurity that a lot of cybersecurity people don't get at all. Like if you're not going for a conviction, then what are we doing here? <laughs> We're the bad guys, right? Yeah, absolutely. But the companies are paying so much money off the lawsuit. That's where it really, that's what really gets them. Because 
if 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 the um there's two sides of it obviously so if one side can prove that oh you knew that you had these vulnerabilities and yeah. you didn't catch them or you didn't fix them as a result of your you know yearly assessment or whatever then you just lost your lawsuit okay yeah. now the other side they're going to say is that well, you know, you know, nation state hackers are coming out to everybody. It would have happened anyway. We did our best. We did our best due diligence. And that goes back to insurance. If you're not doing your best due diligence, if you can't prove to that insurance company that you have done the basics of cybersecurity, which now is being built into those contracts, um, then they're not going to pay. And that's what the problem is. But think about it. That's just like saying, I need car insurance. Now, I don't have any brake lights. My brakes don't work. I check the box and say that they do, but I need car insurance. That's what we're doing in cybersecurity. It's like, yeah, we aren't really doing security, but I want insurance to cover it in case something happens. And insurance companies are pushing back, which they rightfully should do. So where are we at now with that? So when we say pushing back, are how are they getting around that? Are they taking that that written assessment, that checkbox assessment and saying, yeah, you said this, but after the fact, we realized you didn't? Or are they putting into place new measures and implementing new processes that help you know, eliminate the checkbox scenario? Yeah. Um, <laughs> All of that. <laughs> and so what I can give multiple scenarios. Um, I was with uh, a, a, a customer um, last week and he was saying he was scrambling all over trying to find somebody that offered him cybersecurity insurance um, because everybody was saying no. Hmm. He, he could not prove that he was doing certain things. And so um, what, what I'm also seeing is the insurance companies, are, they're stuck. They're like, well, how do I prove that, that each one of our, you know, you know, companies that we're insurance, insuring are actually doing the right things and do it at scale? And yeah. so they're trying to figure that out. Now, what they're, where most of them have landed is making them attest that they are doing it. Now, when they, when they do have an incident, as you say, when that does happen, then they're coming back and saying, okay, cool. Let me see where you were doing these things. I want and to see those logs. Let me, let me see the logs. <laughs> and, and so they see in the logs, that, wait a second, when you signed up, you said you were scanning and patching. You had you know, antivirus on every single system. Uh, we see you don't have antivirus on every single system. You weren't hadn't patched in six months. Um, we're not paying this. No. That was a drive-by hack, basically. <laughs> so you're vulnerable to it. And so the industry needs to change. We need to evolve from that you know, detect and respond mindset that we've got away with for a very long time to, hey, let's do everything we possibly can to prevent an attack. Yeah. And then if it still happens, then okay. I think the equivalent of it is think about your home. I think everybody can relate to this. Think about your home. Everybody at your house at night, you lock your doors, you close your windows, right? Um, but at the same time, if somebody really wanted to get in and you have a you know glass sliding glass door, they can throw something against it, break it in and break in. Okay, that's when, okay, it's inevitable. That's that nation state hacker. But if your doors are wide open, your garage doors open, side gates open, and somebody comes in, um, you're kind of asking for it. 
Oh yeah, I, I always love the physical security references. They're really great. I did uh, physical security assessments for a long time uh, before I got into physical personnel and information security assessments. And it's so funny the things that people don't think about in terms of their home or in terms of their company. Um, you know, people who will have organizations, uh, nuclear power plants, who will have all of this this what seems like very solid security, but when you look up close and personal, you know, the security guards have rubber duckies, and you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> um, noted. So these levels of security, and they don't just apply to physical, but that it's a great way to demonstrate that uh, these layers of security that everybody really should have are often really just too expensive for a company to pay for, especially critical infrastructure, also owner operators. Uh, it's just hard to pay for that. So how do you recommend some of these companies who fit into that category, the, the not giant, you know, fortune 10 companies that have money to throw at this? How do you, how do you, what would you say to them to get them in the right space so that they can get cyber insurance or that they can, you know, be safer? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a few components to this. I think we, one, we got to explain why that, that gap exists. So and I think it's important for the audience to hear this. Um, cybersecurity companies, they're, they're looking for a big deal. They don't want small deals. And so they are not catering to small to medium-sized organizations. So yes. Were, yeah. Yes. And, and so we are broken because of that. Um, and so nobody cares about the little guys here or girls. And so yeah. at the end of the day, um, there isn't much security out there for them. Now, and the challenge is that the whole business, the whole industry has been built around that model. The other piece is, is that there's a shortage of talent, okay? So the talent that is available, they're going to go- I swear to God, you guys, I did not plan this. I did not realize that he was going to get on my soapbox and say the same things, but I'm loving it. I'm loving it. <laughs> it's, it's a synchronicity. We're in sync. Same yeah. thing. There we go. <laughs> so the talent problem oh my god the talent problem is we don't have that the expertise and the schools aren't kicking them out fast enough and so it's just because every single company even a small company needs cybersecurity expertise because here's what has also changed and let's just say the last five years and everybody's talking about ransomware but let me explain what is actually happening there people hear about you know, Colonial Pipeline and all these big companies are being hit with ransomware. What they don't hear about is it's about, I heard, I heard numbers and nobody admits to it, so we don't have exact numbers. Anywhere from 200 to 500 ransomware attacks happen every single day, okay? And you got to make some, some people don't pay. Yep. Some people just pay because there's not that much money to get back into it. Some people go out of business, okay? And so what is, ends up happening, those are the small and medium-sized companies that are being hit and they don't know what to do and they don't have proper security. And I, I interview and I talk to a lot, we deal with a lot of small businesses in our company. And I ask, what does cybersecurity mean to you? And I'm not talking to their technical people, I'm talking to usually the CEO or co-founder or whatever. And they're like, well, wait, we bought antivirus, you know, about five, we, six, we got a sysadmin, that, yeah. that's gonna help, right? <laughs> no. And so um, I think the cybersecurity industry needs to step up and, and help these small to medium-sized companies because here's ransomware would never be as big as it is now if all those successful attacks on small to medium-sized businesses haven't been happening for the last five to eight years. Now they, they see that happening and the ransomware hackers, right? This is, you can get ransomware as a service. You can go online and just sign up for ransomware as a service. All you need to provide is email addresses. 
And then next thing you know, the money is being deposited into your Bitcoin account, right? You don't have to even do anything. And so, you know, it's interesting. I, back in the day, I, I was a pen tester, a hacker, and did all that stuff, right? And it was a little bit harder. Now it's not. Like, everything is so automated. I'm like, oh, my God, I want to be a pen tester nowadays because it's so easy. But yeah. the hacker job is so easy. This whole Log4j thing, it, like, blows my mind. It blows my mind that some tiny, tiny, you know, piece of, of, of code was so powerful and manipulated in so many ways. And I, uh, everybody, uh, you guys know that I am the CEO of a threat intelligence company. And so we're seeing how they, they morph it and how they automate it and do these kinds of things. And you're absolutely right. It's so easy. Anybody can do it. Anybody can do it. And that's really scary when you start thinking about it. Yeah, it's, it's that next evolution, right, of, of where we are. And the cybersecurity industry, we haven't evolved. Uh, we're, we're still stuck in this it is it, crazy being in tech and and literally having a old school business models you know using detect and respond and thinking that is it um legacy a lot of companies just have legacy antivirus or endpoint protection when there's great tools out there but nobody knows about them and then they don't actually implement it to get it locked down um another thing i, I gotta go off on patch management um <laughs> And because this is a big deal, you talk about like Log4j is Patch is, Tuesday. <laughs> so patching once a month is not enough. Oh no! Every single day, around fifty new vulnerabilities come out every single day. Yep. And I say this as an ex pen tester. I've run pen tech testing teams and the security assessment teams for the last, you know, say 23 years or so uh, before I stopped and, you know, built a better model. But at the end of the day, what I realized is that <clears throat> it's obsolete. I literally, you know, I was building the business I have now. And, and one of my old clients was like, well, Corey, you can come do my yearly pen test. And she was like, I hadn't fixed the bleep from last year, but uh, we can come pen test again. And I was like, why, why would you do that? She has to do it to check the box as a CISO, knowing that, you know, they, you know, she wants to do it internally, but internal politics, everything's holding it up, whatever, whatever. But that's systemic in this industry. So, you know, a pen test that, you know, if I did, literally, I was talking to a company uh, three months ago, I guess it was about a month, a month and a half ago, whenever Law Quartet came out. And they were like, we just finished our assessment, like a week before Law Quartet came out. And I was like, well, that's obsolete. All that is obsolete. You got to go back and reassess and see where the vulnerability is. Yes. You know, this is not this is not a once and done thing. This is this is constant risk assessment. Cybersecurity is constant, continuous risk assessment. Exactly. I preach this all day long. Cybersecurity is hygiene. And I have a really gross analogy, but it's it's like saying, hey, I brushed my teeth for this year. I'm good. Right. <laughs> Until your teeth start falling out and then you're like, oh, oh, but I had that assessment. You know, yeah. I had that. I went to the doctor one time. What? <laughs> okay. Yeah. It does. It does. It, it, you see how it does not translate. So you can't say, hey, I did my cybersecurity for the year. I did my assessment for the year. I did my patching for the month. No. Like, it, it has to be constant. It needs to be continuous. Um, we've been thinking about this the wrong way for so long. So yes, cybersecurity is a $150 billion industry. And guess what? 4,000 plus cybersecurity companies and the number of hacks are increasing year over year. Why is that happening? Because people aren't doing what they should be doing. That's why. Exactly. Yep. I can't agree more. I love it. 
Okay, so thinking about cyber insurance and what it could be, or maybe what it should be, what what do you hope um, is the future of cyber insurance? What it, what should it look like? How should they be able to get information? Is it something that becomes a regulated industry? Is it something that the government starts to support? Um, I know right now there's a lot of legislation on the floor that has to do with incident reporting and breach reporting and all of these things. Um, which is really interesting when you think about how that ties into the cyber insurance um, you know, space. So would it make sense for them to have some kind of uh, legal or regulatory authority? Is it better to keep them outside of the process and let them figure out how they're going to get to that point um, on their own? I don't know. What do you think? What is your, your best, most optimized version of the cyber insurance community interacting with, uh, with companies? Um, I think it's really simple. It just has to mature. I mean, you think about car insurance or home insurance, those industries have been, I mean, they've been doing it forever. Uh, cybersecurity, you know, just isn't there yet. There's not enough, you know, data to model. Um, and in the fact that the industry, cybersecurity industry is upside down where we're, we're so focused on, um, you know, you know response-based activities and we aren't focused on, a, a way to prevent this. I mean, you think about it, that's just like saying, you know, back to the home analogy, right? And I think it really applies. It's like, I don't have any door locks, you know, in my house, you know, but I have this monitoring system. Anytime the door opens, somebody walks in, then I know when somebody walks in my house, you're like, well, that makes what, no sense. What about the windows and the open garage and the, <laughs> the no fence? What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the response. And so I agree with cybersecurity insurance companies. Like I, I wouldn't offer it to, to anybody either, because at the end of the day, if, if they're sitting and telling me that their, their, their doors are open, but they want me to give them insurance like that, that, that makes no sense to me. So we as an industry need to mature. I think insurance may be a way to enforce that we actually are doing the right things and securing our organizations. Um, the last thing is the cybersecurity industry has to be democratized, where you know it's not available for everyone. It, it, it is only available for very large companies. And it, but here's the thing, even large companies are still getting it wrong, even though it's available to them. And we this is public, so we can talk about it a lot, but you take the Equifax hack, where is let's just go through the scenario. If they knew every single IT asset they had, that asset would not be sitting on the internet um, unsecured. If they had a continuous scanning process where they scanned everything then and patched everything on a regular basis, that patch was only two months old, but still it got exploited. And uh, then they went all the way from there, all the way to their internal network, and then exfiltrated all the confidential information out. It was a really noisy attack um, that, you know, the basics, you know, you look at the CIS 20, Center for Internet Security, the basics, know what IT assets you have and know what's running on what systems and doing, doing vulnerability management, scanning and patching, and then monitoring after that. But in many cases, we, <laughs> Do the we work. start with monitoring. You know, we skip the first four and you can go straight to monitoring, which I'm like, wait a second, you kind of got to do those other things. It's like, I want to monitor on a lockdown and security environment instead of a completely wide open environment. And, and that's, again, where we are backwards as, as an industry. And those things absolutely need to change. 
You know, um, while you were talking about that, something that popped into my head is, you know, the burnout that kind of, you know, cybersecurity professionals are feeling. And I think that's kind of part of it, right? If, if they were coming into a situation or an organization where they had the ability and the power and the authority to lock everything down and then start into the monitoring phase, then I think a lot of cybersecurity people would be more relaxed because they would know, right, they're coming from this starting point of clean and the company is 100% behind them and they're, they're paying for you guys to do this and for you to do this. But in reality, all cybersecurity people are doing right now is putting out fire to fire, like every day is a fire because of what you just said, because all of the things aren't being looked at. So there's always a vulnerability. There's always something that's coming through. Yeah, it's interesting. You just took me back uh, almost three years. Um, back, so back in 2019, I had a whole talk you know, that I did quite a bit of um, as I was really just diving into the industry, figuring out why are we failing? And the title of it is, my CISO friends are quitting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and literally, like, call me, I'm like, Corey, I'm done. I mean, yeah. the ones that have been around for a very long time, they are quitting. And they're, they're going into consulting and all those different areas. And I asked them, literally, why? And um, I got, you know what CISO stands for? Oh, Chief Scapegoat Officer. 100%. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I mean, what was it? It was a couple of years ago, probably around that time where a CISO had like a one-year lifespan. That was it. That was totally yeah. it. Either they got fired with some very nice, you know, golden parachute or they quit because it's just crazy. Yeah. 18, I do see that starting to change a little bit in, in the CISO community. I am see, I'm seeing a lot more CISOs who are able to connect with the boards and able to connect with the, the CEO and the leadership and say, look, I'm not here to be your scapegoat. I'm here to get everything prepared as best as we can so that if this happens, we can deal with it. And after that, if you fire me for doing my job, these, this is the golden parachute I'm expecting because I'm going to do everything I can. So I think the dialogue is happening. We definitely are not where we need to be with that, but I think it's starting. It is starting for the experienced CISOs that have been through it. Okay, but if I'm, if I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm so a director true. of security and I get a CISO job, I'm jumping in and I'm taking it. Like, okay, I'm signing. All right, I got promoted. I'm, I have a C-level <laughs> position. And so I'm not having that conversation until you get burnt at it. And then you got to go back and then reevaluate, you know, your next gig and, and then figure it out. And I think that's part of the education that needs to happen. But also part of the talk I did, it was really interesting. And I had you know, a bunch of CISO friends help me with it is that, you know, CISO needs to be three things. They need to be a business professional and understand the business aspects of, of it, okay? Um, which is hard because the next one is, they, the next two actually are hard for them because they also have to be very good at politics, okay? And, and sometimes just relationship building, building right relationships and understanding how everything ties into a business context. And then lastly, they also have to be technical, at least to yeah. a certain degree. And so you don't find that in one person. It's very, oh, that's very not true. That's not true. You actually do. I think all CISOs should have at one point in their life been a sales engineer, because that is exactly what that is. That is taking technology, technical requirements, making people get excited about it, getting people to buy it, getting people to buy it again and again and building relationships. And then recognizing once you get to a point that this technology isn't what it should be and I, I got to do something else with it. 
if we made sales engineer CISOs, I think, I think the world would be a better place. I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I disagree with you again. I, I, I figured you, you might. <laughs> you're, you're giving me the little ticks every time you say, don't say sales. No, no I, told you, I love sales engineers. Here, here's the challenge. Sales engineers, um, and I ran consulting organizations, right? So the sales engineer, they would go out and they would actually convince the person to buy a product or whatever, and they were technical, okay? They never implemented it, okay? Ooh, so great. what they did is they could sit there and they could, almost like a salesperson, promised the world, but they never implemented it. So if you have a, a sales engineer that's never implemented anything, and then they're going to go get, maybe they would be good CISOs because they're just, you know, maybe some fluff in there. But I think the better CISOs are actually the ones that were consultants that actually implemented, that actually did the work. Because consulting, what's great about consulting is, and I, again, I live this life, it's where the rubber meets the road. You cannot lie. You cannot make it up. You cannot pretend. Because uh, well, the other big challenge within the industry is that we, we buy all these cybersecurity products. It's, it's like I said, it's like 4,000 of them out there. You buy the best cybersecurity product tool out there. And then the non-technical CISO, they're like, ah, we're secure. We got the greatest tools. We bought everything. But it's never implemented. Because they listen to a sales engineer. <laughs> you better have somebody implementing it and actually getting value, some kind of outcome out of it. That's the only thing that matters in security, the outcome of being secure, just buying a product or whatever. It makes really good points. I'm, I'm going to give that one to him. He makes a good point. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So this has been a great chat. This has been uh, really a lot of fun. And I think I definitely want to have you on the show again to talk about the legal side of that. Cause that, again, that is a whole other mess of craziness. Um, and would just be really interesting. But any final thoughts on you know what we can do in cybersecurity, what insurance companies can do over the next year to really kind of tighten the shot group and and make for a, a better couple of years? Yeah, number one, um, I think these insurance companies um, checklists obviously are not enough. They know that um, they have to actually verify and then potentially maybe even partner with you know some uh, a firm that actually does that verification but they have to verify that these things are actually been done like i've, I've bought houses and i've insurance companies sent somebody out to go and inspect and verify same thing applies so literally i think they can steal from the other industries whether it be auto you know getting an auto accident then they're going to come and look and verify and look and see what happens we need to build that kind of infrastructure within cybersecurity. Um, also, the second thing that ties into it on the end customer side of it, they have to be accountable and not look at just detection tape type of solutions and understand that they have to do everything they possibly can to prevent an attack. Um, now, if a nation state attack happens, then cool, I feel like just by any means necessary, that's going to happen. But you should not be susceptible to drive by hacks. Like you need to be doing the basics of cybersecurity. Don't leave your garage door open at night, okay? Because somebody's going to come and steal your kid's tricycle out, right? So same thing, the easy hack. And so don't be the easy hack. I think that's what we have to be accountable for on the, on the, on the company side of things. That's great. I, I really appreciate you coming on. This is a great topic. I, we touched on a lot of different things today, so I'm going to have a hard time like deciding which, which of these I'm going to go in the direction for the title, but I'm going to think about something cool. But I think it's going to be Drive-By Hacks. I like that. Uh, Corey White and Drive-By Hacks. 
So again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I would love to see you in the future. And uh, for my listeners, this has been another episode of the National Blast and I'll catch you on the flip side. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the National Blast podcast with Keenan Skelly. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.